Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're back from a bit of a break. Yes. I've been off work because it's my birthday and you've been in Spain <laughs> to catch up with the folks and all your various aunties and uncleses. That's right. So. Um, so we've been away for a couple of weeks and we're back with Bullet Train. Yes. I wasn't looking forward to this. I don't know about you. Ah. Um, no, um, I, I kind of was. I mean, yeah. I've seen the trailer and I have grown to like Brad Pitt over the years. Mm. Uh, and it looked like an action, like a glossy action film, and I like that genre. So, I saw the trailers with you, obviously, and I, I remember thinking, I've got this pegged, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of post Tarantino, post Pulp Fiction, sort of high concept. Okay, some twats on a train. They're all going to have a backstory. They're all going to have a name. It'll be quite full of itself. It'll think it's funnier than it is. It'll think it's more stylish than it is. All this kind of stuff. I've seen this film before sort of thing, I thought. Right? Uh-huh. It'll go and... and Because I've seen a lot of them. And it really does feel like a kind of long-term symptom of Pulp Fiction that these films have come about because of. You know, they all want to make the action comedy where the hitmen aren't talking about the hit they're going to do. They're arguing about something else. All this Thomas Hank Engine mm. stuff in this. Felt like that. Um... And I was really pleasantly surprised. I had a fantastic time. And I, I think it's well. much better than all the critics. And In fact, critics... The, critics. So it's like 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. And you expect then, oh, the, the audience will like it more than the critics and there'll be a big difference. But the audience didn't like it either, really. There's some 77% kind of audience metric I saw. I, I think they're both kind of underrating it. I think it's just really good fun. I think it's really good fun. It's really stylish. Actually, it's interesting that you should say that because, you know, so... I was thinking that you don't see many films like this. Okay. And I suppose that as soon as you mentioned it, then, of course, you know, you changed my mind because, of course, you're right. And actually, if you look at uh, David Leach's own career, mm. like films like Hobbs and Sean and uh, Atomic Blonde and, you know, uh, Deadpool 2, mm. they are a bit like this, actually. So, so I wasn't quite right. And I suppose what I meant by it is that it does have an elegance, an ironic nonchalance, yeah, that's kind of very successfully realized Mm. in a way that isn't true of other films, right? So I see what you mean about the post-Tarantino, yeah? Yeah. That kind of striving for a laugh, you know, out of extreme violence and out of an attitude to that situation. Mm. But I think most films don't, don't really pull it off. And actually, I think in this film, it's both... The actors, I think Brad Pitt is absolutely great, right? Like, I think he's learned how to relax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and this character's all about that, too. Yeah, exactly. And it's such a pleasure to, to just watch him have fun, mm. really. Um, and, and actually, I was thinking about that in relation to Aaron Taylor Johnson, who's also very, very good, and so, like, I think surprisingly good. Yeah. And yet, you feel that if only he could relax a little bit, that he would be a much bigger star than he is. You know, it's almost mm. like he's giving a really, really wonderful performance, and yet he never really feels like there's something dead behind there. He never, <laughs> he's overthinking it, yeah? He's giving a performance. It doesn't feel like spontaneous and, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel real the way that it does with Brad Pitt. Yeah, Brad Pitt makes you, you know, uh, think of, of, just things being spontaneous and his responses are always surprising and you know he's got kind of like a he's, yeah he's alive really in a way that 
Aaron Taylor Johnson, who I, who I think is really superb in this, mm. never quite comes alive in the same way. One thing this film does with Brad Pitt is it shows you what a great reactor he is. Yes. You know, his character is all about reacting to things. So he, he, he's this kind of former hitman who feels very bad about kind of a string of bad accidents that resulted in deaths that he kind of didn't intend, that kind of thing. And he wants to just like calm his life down. He's seeing a therapist and all this. And the job that he has to do on the bullet train is um, go collect a case that someone's got and then go and it shouldn't be a difficult job. He's been given a gun and he turns it down. Mm. So like it might be dangerous, but he clearly thinks that there's some other way to resolve this and so on. Seems simple enough. And he's, his code word, his code name, his new code name given to him by his handler is Ladybug. And we're told that this is a, an ironic joke about luck. Like he has terrible luck and Ladybirds are supposed to be a, about good luck. Mm. The reason it gets into you know, him reacting to things is because things do happen to and around him that do involve luck. But the luck, it's a kind of combination of good and bad, like I would say. Like it's, he, he always gets away with stuff or stuff happens that he survives and so on. But there's a bad element to it, like someone else gets hurt or something. Else. You know mm, what I mean? Like yeah, It's yeah. kind of a bad version of good luck in a way. Mm. So it's, it's an interesting thing that the film... And the film is constantly talking about fate and things. But the point is that when those luck, lucky or unlucky things happen to and around him, it's his reactions that sells everything about him, mm. that sells his response to it, that sells what he thinks. You know, And, and he very often has a line of dialogue. The film is quite insistent on capping things with... Joke with mm. like jokey lines here and there. They don't always work, I don't think. But mostly, I think it gets the kind of tone right. But that's that's like that's what he brings to it. That's what Brad Pitt particularly brings to it. It's all about how he sells something just after it's happened. He's really handsome. Still, um, he moves beautifully. Still, yeah. Mm. Like you know, and he's really game. Yeah. So on the one hand, he's really relaxed about everything, but he's really game. So, you know, the scenes of him flying through the train, I mean, mm. you know, they're just, like, joyful to watch, really, because you can see he's really into it, right? Or the scene where he's blasted into the train and his body's all contorted, right? Like, yeah, you can see... Mind you, I don't think... I, I get the feeling that his face was put onto someone who actually could curl up. He is 50-odd. I mean, I don't think he was actually curled up there. Well, I, I thought it was him, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, so, yeah. you know, I mean, he is somebody who's had to pay attention to his body no, sure. all his life. So I wouldn't be, you know, it's not surprising that it is him. Um, but anyway, those things are still a pleasure to watch with Brad Pitt. And what's new is the looseness. Yeah, that he's just having fun with it, really. You know, uh, uh, at the beginning of his career, he was he was also very game, actually. He took a lot of chances, mm. right? But he was almost like overly serious, over-actorly, right? Like, you know, and I think he's grown into, you know, this great star... Uh, who also knows how to act for film because actually it's quite minimalist. He's not overdoing it, mm -hmm. right? It's always just kind of the right amount, right? Mm. Uh, and he's playing, he's playing a, a kind of a satiric, ironic kind of vein, yeah. So he's playing comedy uh, in a way that I suppose is kind of, you know. So he's doing pratfalls. And he's doing a lot of physical stuff. But actually, there's also a sense in which this is like high comedy. So it's not drawing room comedy. But also that you need to maintain a kind of a tone to make it all yeah. work. Yeah. And he does it brilliantly. And I think he's very much aided by the director. Mm. Yeah. Because his timing and the rhythm of the scenes. Mm. Yeah. Kind of work together. Yeah. yeah, I really thought very highly, actually, of the direction in this. I, there are points where I think, I wish you had just... 
you know, put a, giving us a close up on some particular thing, or you know, just something extreme, something that heightens something. Like it, the 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 camera is fairly commonly at this kind of middle distance mm. thing, and it has kind of it finds a kind of interesting angles, and it maybe goes like planimetric straight on, and finds kind of a, a, a fun way to frame something. But typically, it's not doing a lot of that. Um, so I wish the camera work was kind of more expressive and more more bold, maybe. But it's in the timing of the editing and the way it's it balances kind of the different scenes because right at the start you've got all these different plots um, that it brings in and it's juggling them you know kind of where these two characters are where these two characters are where these two characters are and then we drop this for a while and go over here for a while you don't see Brad Pitt for a long time because he's concentrating on these other characters and then you pick him up at the right point and so on and it, and it, it handles it really really smoothly and I was really impressed at how little music there was in the film mm. and actually when it brings in music it, it goes into the kind of characters backstories and shows you you know like these kind of set piece things about how they got there sort of mm. thing there's um, a lot of flashbacks a lot of that and it, it'll bring music into those um, often very well once or twice again I thought it was you know, maybe the, not maybe, maybe not the right piece or maybe kind of insisting upon its own style mm. a little bit too much in those points but when you're on the train, and you do get a lot of kind of periods on the train where you don't have flashback, where you're concentrating on the action in the moment, mm. um, there's hardly any music. Very mm. often, no. And and I was surprised at how absorbing it was, and how great a sense of pace was maintained and tone was maintained mm. without the use of music. Mm. And actually, it speaks highly, I think, of the performances, of the writing, and of the direction that it it is so absorbing. You know, just like kind of using, yeah, using using its own using its own sort of, you know, just off the page sort of storytelling. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, so you know, you often mention in horror like the thing about jump scares, right? Sure. And I think one of the things that this film has is like jump laughs. You know? <laughs> yeah, the kind of something comes out of nowhere, but that often picks up on a joke previously, right? Mm. The water from the toilets, right, and things from the snake, yeah, right. But that results in a big... So instead of being scared, it just you have a big laugh out of something that is picked up like that. And that seems to come out of nowhere and surprise you. But it's been set up. But it's been set up. Term, yeah. and, it's, and it's been like, yeah. And, and it has a different purpose than maybe what you think. And um, I think that's, again, a symptom of the Tarantino theme because that was all about the complexity of the plot and how it's all going to draw together somehow or other. Later films will do that even more. So if you think about like Guy Ritchie, like Snatch, that's all about how everything ties together so neatly, yeah. which is not what Pulp Fiction does, really. I mean, Tarantino is more about... like There were kind of three disparate stories that you just... Mm. You, you notice them in each other sort of thing. Um, so later films got much more complex about that sort of thing. And this is doing elements of that. You know, Ultimately, we're going to have to learn about how all these characters are related. Sure. Um, because... It, doesn't seem like they are at the start, um, and it's clearly setting up kind of mystery. But it it is doing things with these kind of through lines. The thing about the water bottle that you notice at the start, and it's used for one thing and ends up being used for something different later on. And you get that particular joke, as you mentioned, mm. about how the water bottle got there, which is really good because mm. it's one of those films where you know when a character is introduced, they get their title on screen. You know, the the agent or the hitman or whatever it was, and then you get the water bottle, which is fucking great. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> You know, I mean, I can really see how, like, in a different mood, I would have hated this. I think uh, in, oh. in a different mood, I think I would have found that way too cute and way too self-congratulatory. Maybe I was in, like, maybe, maybe mood is really important for me in a film like this because I was in the mood for it. It got me. But I also think it's smarter than most films like this. I, I think, think it's more clever. The jokes are cleverer. The writing is cleverer. I think it's smart. I think it's really, really well done, and I think really, really well edited. So that the rhythms of the scene 
you know, and the rhythm of the action and you know, the way that it's all pieced together kind of conjoin, yeah? Uh, and that's why I think, you know, the tone is maintained uh, throughout. I was also thinking it's really an opportunity to see some of the great American actors of the moment, yeah? I think Michael Shannon, for a while, I thought, you know, he's just the greatest American mm. <laughs> yeah, actor on screen. It took me a while to recognize him, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I think with the hair, yeah, <laughs> and so on. Uh, and the accent, which was very wobbly. And then, you know, also with Brian Tree Henry? Brian Tree Henry. Yeah, who has become my new favorite actor, and I just think he's great. Mm. And, you know, and I think he's great in this, actually. Yeah. You know, so kind of, you know, you had said earlier that kind of Matt hadn't liked him because the English accent is no good or whatever. But I don't care. I mean, I, I, I can't really tell whether his English accent is, is good or not good, you know. But, I mean, my God, he's one of those people who's alive in every moment and responsive in every mm. moment, you know. And he's just great, I think. I also thought Matt was wrong about the accent, having seen no. it. Like, Matt really prepared me for, you know, seeing, like I said, seeing a film that I'd expected would be disappointing and so mm. on. He kind of, he said, yeah, this is this is everything that you said it would be. Mm. And he also said, this Brian Tyree Henry's doing this Cockney accent and it's rubbish. And he said at one point, he says, badass, right? And he does indeed say badass. I don't think he quite says badass. I think Matt overemphasized how bad it was there. It's, and that's not something that we say, right? We say badass, okay? We, you know, we're not stupid people. <laughs> um, but, like with that kind of that, and there's a couple of vowels here and there aside, it's, I think it's, it, it's really believable. I, I got it completely. The chemistry that he has with Aaron Taylor Johnson, who is his, you know, Cockney twin from way back. They're when, wonderful together. They're terrific together. They really, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, again early on, he's doing all this Thomas the Tank Engine stuff, and it's this long-running joke throughout the film that um, Brian Tyree Henry loves Thomas the Tank Engine, and he identifies, he, he 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 clocks people, he works them out according to which train they are. <laughs> and you go, okay, right, is how long is this going to go? On? But actually, I found it more than tolerable. I found it quite charming yes. as the film went on. It's also a fairly British reference. I mean, clearly, it's Americans have seen Thomas the Tank Engine and they know it. Yes, I don't. Um, but it is it is quite British, and you you feel kind of you feel like it knows sort of I don't know, I don't know what kind of research has been done by the writer or anything, but you feel like it knows those kind of, kind of references. Another one, Punch and Judy. They mention when they have to do like this kind of impromptu puppet show, and they yes. mention Punch and Judy. That's super British, I think. Mm. Um, and again, it kind of it's just a line, but it makes you feel like there's something slightly. I don't know. Lived in is too much, but it just has a feeling that it knows a little bit about that. Although having said that, um, you know, it is interesting that this is a film based on a Japanese novel from 2010, set in Japan, and the original novel was, you know, Japanese people, yeah. and here almost no one is Japanese. You know, it's, it's white actors and black actors all over the place, all American and English. Mm. Um, and I think there has been an issue, you know, made of. Um, it's kind of reputation I know, but I, I just think people are unreasonable about that, to be honest. I mean, yeah. yes, the economics of this type of film means if you make it at all in Hollywood, it's going to have a Hollywood star. It's going to need them. Yeah, you know, you can't sell this kind of film on what to, you know, the majority of an international audience would be unknowns. So, you know, this is just kind of uh, the economic reality we live in. It might be undesirable to some, but you know, I just, I just think this is the kind of thing that, um, I mean, you can, you can talk about, you know, whitewashing and mm. so on in many situations, with reason, 
But I think this is kind of, to me, an unreasonable discussion. You know, either the film doesn't exist or it has to be made with stars. It's as simple as that, really. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and nobody uh, that I know of, you know, who's Japanese would be able to um, play the Brad Pitt part for an international production. I'm sure you could make it as a local film on a much lesser budget and so on and so forth, fine, right? Mm. But then it becomes something else, right? Yeah, and, I'm, and you could certainly imagine this film being a big Japanese production, sure. Japanese actors, and coming over here and, you know, with subtitles and so on, but it wouldn't be the same. This is It's been optioned by an American studio with American I, money. I, I actually don't think it would be easy to finance a $90 million Film in Japan, yeah. Uh, Mind you, how much of that is the stars? Yeah. Well, the thing is that the film looks much more expensive than that. I think, you know. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it certainly got its production values. I'm so, not sure it looks a lot more expensive than ninety million dollars. I think. I, I think you can I tell I, when money's been spent on on on, on stars. Well, stars, yeah. the stunts, the action bits, mm. you know, the runaway train bits. I mean, those all look quite expensive to me. Mm. I mean, it looks yeah. like a big budget action film is what it looks yeah, like. Sure. Yeah, sure. You know, so, and that is, they often cost a lot more than the 90 recently. So, um, I, yeah, well, I, we're not talking Avengers level stuff. I mean, it's, it's, no, we're not talking Avengers level stuff, but nonetheless, sure. yeah, it's now you can complain about it. But of course, Hollywood has a whole tradition of taking Spanish novels or French films or mm. indeed British films and turning them into American movies, really. Mm. You know, so, so I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. And I actually think that the film, within its own terms, has tried to do the best it can, yeah? Sure. It has cast Japanese actors. It has cast, uh, you know, black actors. It has cast Hispanic actors. You know, all that I'm sure we're missing from the original novel. So, you know, kind of... Uh, yeah, well, I think the complaint... Give... Is, well, I think the complaint is is more... Not about, you know, it's taken a novel from this place in the world and made an American film out of it, but that it is remained set in Japan and therefore isn't it unrepresentative that everyone on this train pretty much is American or English. Right. Um, I think that's kind of the issue... Um, but you're right that particularly those, those Japanese characters that are in the film are an important part of it, and indeed they open the film. The film mm. opens with two Japanese characters and subtitles, yes. you know, which is not something you would necessarily expect if it was just flat out sort of mm. you know, ignoring the Japanese. Yes. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, there's a kind of a balancing act to it. Um, there is, but you know, but on the other hand, I like that it's set in Japan. Um, I mean, they, I'm sure they could have said it. You know, in in Berlin or whatever. I was I mean, say, or, you were going to say America then. They hate the train. Well, the thing is, they don't have high sp- high speed yeah. trains that I know of. So you know that whole plot element would go out the window. But I'm sure they could have said it in other places with high speed yeah. trains. But why? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I I just uh, um, I mean, there are complex arguments to be had about about representation and exclusion and all of those things. But, you know, I wouldn't hitch my wagon to that argument on this film. No, no, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I'm glad we've spoken about it kind of without any particular reference to spoiler kind of stuff because it's a film that, in that in that kind of complicated plot vein, things develop and all all these things are revealed. And I don't want to reveal enough. I'd rather mm. urge people to see the film. I think it's worth going to the cinema to see. Oh, I think it's essential. Actually, you know, I was reading a really interesting book today. It's called something like Against Cinephilia. 
you know, and the writer talks by how, you know, as a teenager, he went to see the river, the Renoir film, and he had like this moment after the film, you know, which was just like an epiphany and, you know, it, it spurred his love of cinema and so on. And then, you know, he never had an experience like that subsequently, you know, and then he talks about how, you know, he's mostly saw films on his laptop because he had access to a greater variety of films. And then he says, well, isn't it interesting that all of these epiphanies that people talk about, they always happen at that moment after they see the film. And I was saying, no, that's to me, you know, that's so stupid, you know, because of course you never had an epiphany like that again, because you never, you know, if you're not seeing films in the cinema, right, where you you give over control of time, you're invaded by the hugeness of this image, mm -hmm. you know, there's darkness, you're completely involved in this drama. And of course, you're immersed in whatever feeling you're having. And then, of course, the moment of epiphany is after the film because that's when the film lets go of you. Mm -hmm. right? Until then, you're you're involved, you're immersed, you're you know you're not yeah thinking, yeah, yeah. you know. So 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 I think so much of people's experience of a work of of cinema, you know, if it doesn't happen in the cinema, it's a different kind of experience, and you should expect different things from it, really. And I think that kind of you know this is a film that really benefits from being seen in the cinema, because aside from everything else, it's a comedy. I actually think that if they had sold the film as a comedy, it would be even more successful than it is. I think they did. I mean, did they? Well, I certainly got the sense of it from the trailer, you know, because it had that, in the trailer, for instance, I'm sure it had that thing where Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brad Pitt are fighting and then they're interrupted by the waitress or the, the, the train stewardess. And, okay. and, and, you know, and it's a comedy sort of, we can't fight right now because the person's here and... So okay, from it, the it trailer, definitely sold it as the action comedy thing. Okay, action. Well, from the trailer, I got a sense more it was like an action film with a few jokes. Mm. Uh, whereas I think it really is a comedy. Um, and, you know, if you're watching comedy, it's almost like the success of it is really, to me, dependent on an audience. Yeah, completely. You know? I mean, as soon as people laugh, you're either laughing with them or wondering why you're... I mean, you tend to laugh more, yeah. Uh, you know, the, other people's laughter is an encouragement to your own. You know, whereas when you're seeing it kind of on your own, either on your laptop or on TV, you know, I mean, if if a film yeah, gets ten percent of the laughs from you, it's doing really well. Whereas, you know, in, yeah, it's, it's, laughter is almost like a social thing, really. It is. Yeah. Um, and also, to be honest, I also think that um, an appreciation of acting. <laughs> uh, it's not that you don't appreciate it when you're not watching on a big screen, but that there's, you know, like Brad Pitt, I think he's he's doing such subtle things, such minimalist things, you know, that you really get the full effect of them, mm. in, you know, when you're immersed in his face, yeah? Like, yeah, when, when the screen is huge, mm. yeah, and every little, yeah, smile or whatever, like, it really registers. Yeah. Um, so, so I, you know, I was really glad that we saw it on the screen. I also thought that your your... I slightly disagree with you about the visuals because, you know, the film opens from the moment that the film opened, the first shot in the film, I thought this is someone who's paying attention to visuals because, sure, you know, I don't know if you remember the image, yeah, but it's Brad Pitt and it's like this yellow light and it has this real noir feel, but mm -hmm. it's all in amber and yellow, slightly skewed, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, wow, it instantly sets a tone, yeah, yeah. 
No, I, I agree with that. It's not a film that's ignoring its visuals, and it's not a film that doesn't understand what makes an, an interesting or beautiful mm. or expressive image. There were just points where I, I felt like it had it had room to do a little bit more. It was kind of I do think I don't think it's controversial to suggest that it's basically keeping the camera at the same sort of distance most yeah. of the time. To be honest, I didn't really notice that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's maybe a credit to the film. Yeah. Right? Because I was thinking, isn't it extraordinary? I mean, I really like the film. I mean, I don't think it's a major work of art or anything, no. but it was a hugely enjoyable experience for me. And I was thinking, isn't it interesting that, you know, here is this, this action film. It's full of action and shootings and deaths and whatever. And really, kind of what, you, what hits you most is the tone and the acting. Mm. Yeah, those mm -hmm. are the two things that I think you come away with thinking, oh my God, you know, it's such an, you know, the actor, weren't the actors brilliant? And, you know, isn't it amazing that they sustain this tone, which is almost like high comedy, you know, like throughout the film. I mean, that's amazing. Mm. And I think it is amazing when you consider that it's an action film, yeah? Like, and it does do the action, right? Like, it's mm. full of action, like throughout the film, yeah. right? And, and what you come out kind of impressed by is tone and acting. Yeah, you know, so so I think that's it, well, it definitely makes it. Uh, so we didn't like Deadpool two, and in fact, we we half recorded a podcast on that. So we did see it together, mm -hmm. and then it never went out because it put us in such a bad mood that we thought we can't put this out. It's awful. <laughs> we, just, we just didn't finish the podcast. We we're like, fuck this. Uh, um, and you know, I, I mean, actually watching this makes me think that Deadpool two might be worth another look. Maybe there'd be something in it that I would actually like more this time. I remember feeling it was very, very, um, very, very keen for you to know that it was 18 rated and, yes. and it was quite infantile and you know, because being 18 rated for a superhero film mm. is kind of it's like it's shocking and ooh. um so i really I was, enjoyed I found the that first quite, one i found that quite off-putting yeah but he didn't do the first one i know no, no, no. um and mind you i don't think i enjoyed the first one either i can't remember it very well though um I haven't seen Atomic Blonde. You have, and you really like it. Yeah, I really liked Atomic Blonde. I really liked Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw is the other point of yeah. reference, which which that was my first uh, go at Fast and Furious, that mm. whole series. And okay, it's a spin-off. But I was, again, surprised at how much I liked that. I thought it was going to be really knucklehead in all the stuff you associate. And when we saw Fast and Furious 9, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. It super boneheaded. But Hobbs and Shaw, really good sense of... Comedy, humor. sense of pace, yeah, good tone, action scenes. Again, it was kind of nonchalant, ironic, kind of yeah, a little bit tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, it very American in that it it kind of it doesn't let it doesn't let you notice when a joke has happened. It's very it it um it points out where the jokes are, sort of thing. You know, like a like maybe a British or maybe like a German film would be super dry, mm. and and maybe you you would kind of have to be in its. In its um, kind of on its wavelength more mm. to to get it. I think this is a little bit more obvious in some respects, but that doesn't make the jokes any less intelligent or kind of well thought out, well written, which mm. they are. Um, and and so yeah, it's, I'm not. I don't think that David Leach is going to be like a major sort of. Well, I say major. He's making expensive films and making a lot of money with them, so that's one thing. But um, in terms of kind of. In terms of sort of you know quote unquote film art, you know you, you, don't, you don't think he'll maybe well, make it to the heights of of those kind of you know upper echelons of the canon, but but he's clearly making basically really decent, a better than you expect action comedies. I mean, you know, it's a very impressive filmography that yeah. he's got, right? Because I mean, he was involved with John Wick. Yes, yeah, so he co-directed yeah, that, and that's did, what 
yeah, yeah. Brought him to he did Atomic Blonde, yeah, Deadpool Two, Hobbs and Sean, and this. That's not shabby, you know. Right. And actually, people will be thinking, why are you ignoring John Wick? And the reason that I haven't mentioned John Wick, even though that is the film that you know he co-directed with Chad Stahelski, and he didn't do the other two. That's Chad Stahelski on its own. Um, but that you know that made him a name after because he was a stunt coordinator before mm-hmm. that and so on. Um, the reason I haven't mentioned it is because I don't remember joking that film. You know, like it's clearly it was a major action film, mm. and that's had an influence, I think, long term on action as well. Mm. Um, and I think it's probably had an influence here. I mean, you know, it's clearly an interest in neon lighting. Yes. <laughs> you see that in Atomic I mean, Blonde. I love the John Wick films, so um, so it kind of there's there's certainly um, an aesthetic sort of um, influence that it's had because there's there's neon kind of all, all over this sort of thing at points at least. But yeah, the reason I don't I didn't bring it up as a point of reference was because the action wasn't what stood out for me here. Mm. It was the comedy, mm. and that's not something that you associate with John Wick. Mm. The comedy, that's no, true. So, uh, but it is very much something that you associate with the rest of Leach's work. Yeah. So, uh, and and I think to to be successful at it, yeah, and to be able to be so playful and maintain that kind of tone to make you know to make things funny. You know, and to do it in action, yeah, is and to get you know what he gets out of these actors, I think you know it's a great job of directing. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so, so I recommend it more than either the critics or the audience. It's just got kind of poor to mixed responses, and I, I th- maybe people have been a bit curmudgeonly. I kind of yeah. like it. Yes, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I liked it very, very much actually. Uh, uh, I mean, again, and you know, who knows? Maybe if I think about it some more, but. Like, for the time being, I don't think it's a great of work of cinematic art, but then you don't go out on a Thursday night to see a great work of cinematic art, right? You go to have fun, and this provides great fun. Mm. And then, I'm not sure, I mean, maybe if I think about it some more, it does have themes of, like, you know, family and human relations and, you know, attitudes to life and so on, you know, that uh, might uh, uh, give one more to think about than at first glance. So I must say at first glance... That's not the most interesting thing about the film. <laughs> <laughs> no, fate is the big one. Fate uh, is the big thing that it's constantly talking about, and it ends up by talking about fate, yes. you know, with this the, the, the car getting crushed, and it's like his last bit of bad stroke good luck mm. sort of thing. Um, and so the film definitely wants you to be taking that away as, mm. as what it's been talking about the whole time. Um, in, in a serious sense, it's very very flat and 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 quite thin really mm. it's all about you know just everyone's been brought here for a reason fate has you know every everyone's got their backstory we've all ended up on this train for whatever reason and blah 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 and you know th- this is the the japanese um kind of elder character who's um, particularly kind of he brings his wisdom to the sort of thing you know i, I think you can kind of see where some people are talking about like oh right yeah the japanese character is wise <laughs> um but the the film Makes an attempt to sell that, and I think I tolerated it. I thought, yeah, 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 come on, it's just. Yeah, of course, they all end up here to film. The, where the film is actually very effective, I think, in using all this fake stuff is making jokes out of it. It is about kind of how the long-running gag, um, you know, makes that how that water bottle ends up at the end of the film because fake got it there, and it's been set up throughout that there was going to be something with this water bottle, that sort of thing. All that how in these flashbacks characters were in the same place at the same time. Like, what the hell were they doing in Bolivia together? Actually, it's never entirely... You know, some things are just not explained at all, but they just happen to have been together. I that, think it, It's kind of charming in that sense. I think there is but, a major theme of family, like, uh, that runs throughout, you know, so it's very, very present in the relationship between, you know, the Japanese 
Gangland boss, his son and his grandson, mm. is very present, though it's the reverse of that, with the Russian, you know, warlord and his daughter. Mm. Uh, it's very present between the two twins, in quotation marks, who are of different races, but, yeah, who are clearly brought up together. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it yeah. is a, a, a constant theme in the film that's worked out in different ways, you know, and that yeah. might... Um, Despite the fact the main character doesn't have anything to do with that, which is interesting. I mean, the main character, I think you have to say, is Brad Pitt, despite main, it being an ensemble. The main character is Brad Pitt, but he's lost, he's searching, he's mm. a, you know, a California kind of hippie beach bum <laughs> type who is kind of always you know, reading the latest self-help books and trying to find answers and looking for the human connection that everybody else seems to have but him. Mm. You know? And then that's kind of provided at the end in an odd and interesting way. Sure. So... So I think yeah. I think it is a theme that's worked through. Now, you know, how revelatory it is or with how much depth it's worked through that remains, you know, to be thought about. But my first impression is that it's not. That it doesn't have much great depth. But that is one of the things that's working through. Sure. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, I highly recommend it. Yeah, me too. I had a good time. All right, well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>